Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 244 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. For beekeepers overwintering colonies, it may seem that spring is still a long way off, but there are things we can do to check the health of our bees. One of those is checking for nosema. Stay tuned to hear some of my thoughts and what the results could mean for your coming season. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I don't know about you guys, but this January has seemed a little colder than in previous years. We've had a few sharp frosts throughout the month, and as we head towards February, we can probably expect a few more before the weather finally breaks and we tentatively think about spring. For me, I look forward to the willow trees flowering, especially at the Fishing Lakes Apiary. There are so many. The catkins start to emerge and gradually open, revealing huge amounts of bright yellow pollen. This seems to be the first major food source for our bees locally, and it kickstarts huge growth in colonies as we head into spring proper. Before then, we have lots of opportunities for our bees to forage. Right now, I'm seeing more and more snowdrops appearing. Not that they give colonies a huge amount, but it's maintenance feeding, if you like, for our small colonies. There will be more opportunities for them as each week passes by and we head further into 2023. I'm thinking about checking colonies next week. That's the final week of January, the end of the month, and they do seem to come around quickly these days. Oh, that reminds me, I'm heading over to the States for the second week of February. It's my daughter Beth's 30th birthday, and it's the time of year that allows me to take a week away from the business without worrying too much. Well, not too much anyway. I'll be away for just a week, so don't fret too much. I'd quite like to visit when there are leaves on the trees and Pennsylvania has a chance to show off just how beautiful a state it can be. Unfortunately, it will be mostly bare tree trunks and drab brown countryside while I'm there, unless of course it snows. Before that trip though, I want to get around the apiaries, heft and maybe pop some fondant on where I feel it's needed. Thinking ahead, we also have some pollen saved from last summer that we can feed back to the bees prior to the willow coming into flower. Once that happens, we can back off supplementing them and they'll do their own thing. Last season, we fed pollen substitute with the usual mixed results. Some colonies took it down and wanted more. Others, quite interestingly, worked through the supplement eating the syrup and leaving the protein supplement behind. For those of you not familiar with pollen sub, generally it's a mixture of protein flowers of some sort or other that we mix with sugar syrup to form a paste which we feed in the same way as fondant slabs. So here we're making up expensive pollen substitutes only for the bees, literally, to separate the syrup from that sub, leaving a scattering of protein dust on the crown boards. Feeding pollen is totally different. We very rarely see bees leaving grains of pollen behind. It's an easy meal for them. 
It's why we're always thinking ahead in this game. If we want to feed pollen sub in late winter, we have to think about it in the spring and summer to make sure that we collect enough to see us through. Pollen traps are readily available to purchase for most beehive types, or if you're a woodworker, you can probably make your own quite easily. <laughs> Obviously, I opt for purchased pollen traps, and they work really well, but don't overwork the bees. A little pollen removed from colonies every now and then won't inhibit the growth or honey production of that colony, but if you deprive them of too much pollen, it will have an impact on their ability to feed their larvae. Once collected, we take the pollen back to base and freeze it. It remains in the freezer until we're ready to use or sell it. The easiest way to feed it back to our colonies is by mixing it into some softened fondant. I'll shoot a video showing how, but the trick is to cut the fondant while it's cold and then get the fondant warmed up a little so that it's sticky and drop it into a tray of pollen. Give it a roll around to coat it, press it in and generally knead it for a little while and that will incorporate as much as you want. Let it cool again in a fridge if needed, but actually it's cold enough at the unit now to firm up quite quickly. And then we wrap them and feed these blocks back to the bees in the same way as normal fondant blocks. But I usually make them smaller. I don't want to waste that valuable pollen on colonies that aren't interested in it. The vast majority take it. A small, very small minority won't. It's important to add at this point, don't start feeding pollen or pollen substitute too early in the winter. Far more important is access to water, but when they do start taking in pollen or pollen sub, it's likely the brood nest will be expanding and you'll need to keep feeding until winter breaks and the bees can get out and forage in earnest. No problem last year, but when we were visited by the beast from the east, the feeding period was extended by many weeks beyond that which I would normally have expected. If you start and stop early before they can fend for themselves, you may very well kill them by starvation. Just to add, many colonies simply won't need feeding any additional fondant or pollen substitute. It's not a prerequisite of beekeeping that you have to feed them through the winter. If you've fed them in autumn and they're a decent sized colony, hefting will indicate that they're still well stocked with stores, then simply just leave them alone. Some beekeepers feed fondant and pollen sub to induce larger colonies for the spring to take advantage of the spring nectar flow because maybe that's the only crop that they get. Others will be looking to produce larger colonies in order to split them early in the season for increase or sales. We each have our own reasons for feeding pollen or pollen sub in late winter, so don't rush out and buy boxes and boxes of it to feed if you don't need to or you don't have a reason to. I mentioned in the intro the opportunity to check on our colony's health by testing for nosema, and mid to late winter is a really good time to be able to do this. The colonies are generally smaller, quieter, and the test can reveal if an infection is present and, depending on the level of that infection, indicate what might need to be done to help the colony as spring approaches. 
Over the years, I've looked at the effect of Nosema on our colonies, and as our general understanding of the pathogen improves, our ability to understand what's happening, and in particular, our ability to help our bees maintain a healthy colony, improves. To begin with, it helps to understand the life cycle of Nosema species, in particular, the life cycle of the two Nosema species that are particularly relevant to our honeybees, Nosema apis and Nosema serrane. As it's a life cycle, we have to jump in at any given point and follow it round all the way back to the same point. So let's consider the starting point as being the moment one of our honeybees takes up a Nosema spore. First though, a little more about Nosema's biology. It's what's known as an obligate spore-forming microsporidian. Obligate simply means it needs a host to complete its life cycle. It couldn't, for instance, live and multiply in a beehive without infecting the honeybees. Spore forming, I think, is fairly self-explanatory. Part of its reproductive cycle includes the formation of millions of microscopic spores. Maybe think of them as seeds. Tiny, single-celled reproductive units that grow into the mature form of Nosema to continue the life cycle. And Microsporidia is the scientific classification, the place in the huge tree of life that, given current understanding of this parasite, we place it. So, Nosema. We're lucky we only have to consider two of these. There are something like 1,500 currently classified versions and possibly millions more as yet unclassified. Two is more than enough for us to contend with right now, so let's consider ourselves lucky and look more closely at how they impact on our honeybees. We have our adult worker honeybee wandering around the hive and cleaning up, generally doing what we loosely term housekeeping duties. This unfortunately is where the spore is ingested. At this point the spore is inactive and it remains so until it enters the midgut of the honeybee. Now although we're trying to remove Nosema from our hives, I can't help but be impressed by the mechanism it uses to infect and multiply within the honeybee. Be warned, it's a little bit of a horror show, so if you're eating your lunch or dinner or even breakfast, you might want to come back later. Once in the midgut of the honeybee, the spore finds its way to the epithelial cells of the gut. These are the inner lining. At this point, imagine an oval-shaped cell, something like a hen's egg or a squat grain of rice, and inside this cell is a spiral with a point at the end. Here's an interesting difference between Apis and Serrani. Apis has something like 30 to 44 spirals, Serrani only 20 to 23. Now it's not possible for us to see them using our microscope because we can only just see the entire Nosema spore. They measure something like 6 by 3 microns for Apis and 4 by 2.2 microns for Serrani. A micron is 0.001 of a millimetre, so it's very small. You'll need a transmission electron microscope to see the spirals. Unfortunately, I don't have space for one currently. Anyway, I digress. When the Nosema spore finds its spot, the coil unwinds and the tip is pushed out and punctures the cell wall and infection occurs. Within the cell, 
the nosema multiplies until eventually the cell bursts and millions of new spores are passed out by the honeybee when it next defecates. So that's the process of nosema reproduction. But what effect does it have on our honeybees and colony in general? Well, both apis and serrani have slightly different impacts, but on adult bees and colonies generally, at a beekeeper level, it's simple enough to say that it's negative and needs assistance. It's all very well getting deep into the science and understanding how Nosema works, but what's really needed is practical help for beekeepers. And I'm really keen on management rather than eradication using chemicals or medicines for this. So why do colonies get infected? Well, the effect of this infection leaves our adult workers in a lethargic state. Unwilling or unable to head out of the hive on toilet breaks, they will poop in the hive on the combs other workers attempt to clean up after them and as a result get infected themselves. It multiplies and an entire colony can go down with it. If that colony dies or becomes so weak that it can't defend itself, other colonies will sneak in and rob out the stores, picking up the infection along the way and taking it back to their own colony so the problem escalates throughout an apiary. I'm sure you've already spotted one way to prevent the spread, check hives regularly and remove any dead outs immediately that they're found and clean out the equipment thoroughly. As I said, testing colonies is a really useful way not only to identify the presence of nosema but also the infection level. For this we simply use a low, medium or high classification and personally I only really worry about colonies that show the highest level of infection. The process of checking is simple enough but don't rely on the old-fashioned method of looking out for spotting on hives. It's simply not accurate enough. Spotting is where bees leave the hive on cleansing flights, toilet breaks as it were, but they don't get far from the hive before they poop. They come out of the hive, fly upwards and poop over the hive roof and walls, leading to what we term spotting. More accurately, I would call it streaking, but it's all the same stuff. The reason it's associated with nosema is the fact that the disease causes lethargy and it assumes that lethargic bees don't fly far from the hive before they go to the loo and therefore poop on the hive itself before returning to the colony. Now this may well be the case in some instances but from my own experiences and testing hives that show this spotting I've been surprised to find little or no evidence of infection whereas in colonies that show no signs of spotting, I've found high levels of infection. The only way to be sure is by testing. You will need a microscope and a few bits and pieces, but not much really. I know some beekeepers believe microscopes to be expensive, but I've just taken a quick look on the Brunel Microscopes website, and there's a perfectly good microscope on sale for around £150. Now compare that to the loss of a full-size colony because you weren't able to identify a nosema infection and you have to buy a nuke or split another colony to make an increase and a nuke alone is going to cost close on £300 these days and if you lose two or three colonies it's going to get expensive. If you have to split colonies then there's the subsequent loss of a crop. So get a microscope watch my videos, have a lot of fun through the winter and potentially save your honeybees from collapse. 
So let's say you find an infection of Nosema. What to do? Well, for goodness sake, don't go reaching for treatments. They're unnecessary and we should all look to move away from using chemicals and treatments generally wherever possible. I much prefer comb replacement or frame replacement. This can be just a few frames in the case of a low to moderate infection or a complete shook swarm for those highly infected colonies. Timing is important here, particularly with these infected colonies. Too soon and they won't draw out the new comb well. There'll be holes and partially started comb as a result. Too late and the colony can become so depleted that they may need to be transferred into a nuke box to recover. Again, there's no replacement for experience here. Longer days and warmer nights definitely improve the chances of well-drawn-out frames. But if the colony is struggling, you might want to go with a couple of frames initially before carrying out a complete shook swarm once it gets warmer. If you happen to have already drawn comb, then that would be ideal. So despite all of the science, good beekeeping husbandry will more often than not keep your bees healthier than doing nothing or reaching for medication. That's medication for the bees, not the beekeeper. It's not difficult to replace frames or perform shook swarms, so why wouldn't you, in order to keep your bees healthy and maximise that honey crop later in the season? I'll add links in the podcast notes to the science that I've used today, and maybe I've convinced you to grab a microscope and join me in checking for disease. So I'll add a link to Brunel Microscopes too. I'll catch up with you all again in a week's time. Don't forget to check out my website, www.norfolk-honey.co.uk. And for my latest videos and podcasts with more updates, tips and techniques, it's the same Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. And remember, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Sweet.